Hey Swamp Folk, welcome back to another exclusive story here on the Swamp Dweller channel. That's right, you'll only find this story exclusively here in the Swamp, and you won't hear it anywhere else. Before we jump right into this story though, today's episode is sponsored by Chilling. For those who do not know, Chilling is the new home of horror. I want to make sure you take advantage of the free trial if you haven't yet. This is an amazing mobile app that allows you to do things that are just not possible on YouTube and other platforms. With hundreds of amazing stories that are sorted into playlists or playlists you can create yourself, we give you so much flexibility to listen the way you want. This includes a chilling exclusive feature, the ambient sound menu. You can change the background noise of the story that will fit your mood at will. It's an absolute game changer. Of course, this is all offered completely and totally ad-free. That's right, no ads. Just hundreds of hours of uninterrupted, horrifying, creepy, and all-around spooky content. You'll find many of your favorite narrators like Swamp Dweller, Let's Read, Being Scared, Mr. Creeps, and many, many more. Not only are new narrators being added all the time, but they're also adding classic novels, vintage horror radio, true crime, and tons of other stuff. You also now have the ability to download for offline listening. To celebrate Chilling's one-year anniversary, they are currently giving away a Samsung 70-inch Class 7 Series LED 4K UHD Smart TV, a Samsung 4 one-channel soundbar, and a limited-edition Chilling one-year t-shirt. There will also be two first-place runner-ups who will receive a $100 gift card for Amazon and a Chilling one-year edition t-shirt as well as five second-place runner-ups who will receive $25 gift cards to Amazon and a limited-edition Chilling One-Year t-shirt. You can find more about these details with the link in the description. Hello, Mr. Swamp Dweller. I work for the National Park Service in Washington and found your channel last week. The fact you created a safe place for people to share these stories is amazing, and I'm finally ready to tell mine. My family would worry themselves sick and friends would never believe it. But maybe the good people here in the swamp will. At this point, I'm frightened not only for the park guest, but for myself and my partner as well. It would be an honor and truly appreciated if you would consider reading this to your viewers. I can't risk saying the park name or personal details. We were specifically warned not to discuss this outside of work but I will lose my mind if I don't tell someone. I'm not a ranger. We're actually called park attendants because it sounds friendlier than security guards. We were hired to patrol from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. after a series of strange incidents. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we're from one of those fancy ex-military security firms. Not even close. We're just regular people. The kind hired when the mere presence of a body is enough to deter would-be vandals. Most of the others are like me, middle-aged men with large physiques, but there's a few women and college kids too. On my first night, I reported to the visitor's center where Ranger Rick introduced me to the under- On my first night, I reported to the visitor's center where Ranger Rick introduced me to the other attendants and prepared us for the tour. We weren't meant to cover the entire park, only campsites, lodges, and connecting trails, but it's still a huge expanse of area. 
They wanted to make sure guests knew we were there. Our purpose was to reassure them as much as it was to scare assholes or pick up trash. Their advertisement made it sound like they wanted to keep pranksters away from campers. Nothing really implied any danger. Rick said someone was walking around the campsites, lodges, just out of view, at all hours of the night, whistling. Hikers hear it as well. Despite numerous complaints, no one had ever caught a glimpse of the source, or so they claimed. Do you see how easy it is to blame these occurrences on human mischief? There was nothing to indicate anything, unnatural. It was not until speaking with guests that a hint of something sinister arose. Rick's tour ended by nine, and when we received our assignments, I've never been an anxious person, but walking those unfamiliar trails alone in the dark had me on edge. My route covered half the campsites, most of which were occupied, but the trails had vacant sites that were pitch black on a starless night, armed with only a reflective vest, flashlight, and pepper spray. My journey began. The first path led to campsite A and walking beneath its canopy of trees was like entering a completely different world. Being out there was a way of making the impossible seem not only possible but probable. There was absolutely no reason to feel that way, but my pace steadily increased from speed walking to jogging. It was the soft glow of firelight ahead that suddenly made me feel foolish. The change happened so fast it was like pressing a button. I stopped to listen for any sound that might justify my panic, but there were only insects to be heard. After turning a few slow circles with the flashlight, I attributed the incident to first day jitters and resumed my route at a normal pace. As Ranger Rick said and requested, I introduced myself to the campers. We couldn't specifically ask if they experienced anything strange, but we provided opportunities to share concerns. The theory was that the guest might witness something important yet deem it unworthy of reporting, especially if it required hiking back to the visitor center. More often than not, that theory was proven correct and it's obvious when someone wants to talk. They're more hesitant to answer and can't quite look you in the eye. They don't want to see your expression change when you hear their wild claims. The family of four who occupied Site A weren't shy about anything. They were on vacation all the way from Mississippi and the father, who dwarfed me in size, was quite vocal. The night before, they awoke to footsteps at approximately 1.30 in the morning. Something on two legs was shuffling around their campsite. Not wanting to spotlight himself in the dark clearing, Jim waited until the person was close before leaping out of the tent. He was armed with a Smith & Wesson, 45, and his wife had a shotgun. They had waited to take action in hopes of letting the stranger get close enough to see his face but not only was there no retreat, there was nobody there at all. At the very least, they expected to hear a frenzied escape or to catch a glimpse of the perpetrator's back, yet the couple were met with nothing. After several minutes passed in silence, they returned to their sleeping bags only to have the footsteps pick up exactly where they left off a few yards away. Jim described it as playing red light, green light with a ghost. Had I known how preferable a simple haunting would sound only days later, I might have quit that very night. Eventually, they left the tent open and alternated sleeping until dawn. When they asked why they didn't report it, Jim said that he planned to do more than that if it happened again, but wouldn't elaborate further. 
I felt confident for the family's well-being knowing they were prepared, though it did not do much to quell the rising doubts for my own safety. Forcing my feet onto the next long, winding trail was a challenge, but even more difficult was approaching the second group of campers. I was horrified by what they might say, but all was well on their end. In fact, Site E was the only other group to report anything unusual. Four college guys were studying away from their loud dormitories. That might sound like BS, but they had books everywhere. They weren't rowdy frat jerks, they seemed like genuinely good kids, and if nothing else, I have no doubt they believed every word they said. It wasn't made up for laughs. I'm sure they had booze and who knows what else, but they were sober when we spoke. Those fellas told their story in clear, concise points. It was obvious they discussed it amongst themselves at great length. Their visit was normal until the night before when they woke to long, high-pitched whistles. Each time someone spoke, the noise stopped. When it didn't happen again, they fell back to sleep. The third alarm occurred at 3.03 and stopped the moment they emerged from their tents, each convinced of the other's guilt. When it happened again at 5.05, they gave up on resting and began the day. After more coffee than one should ever consume, they hiked to the river for a day of exploring before finding a trail that circled back to camp. Unfortunately, they underestimated the distance of their final path and were still a full mile away when it grew dark. Your phone light might seem bright in the bedroom, but they're infuriating in the woods. The one who did the most of the talking, Pete, was the first to hear anything strange. He stopped suddenly, signaling the others to follow suit. The sound of someone taking a few more steps before also coming to an abrupt halt was unmistakable. One of the boys called out a tentative, Hello? But before he could say more, Pete silenced him with a sharp tug on the arm. Pulling the others along, he listened intently for the sound of a pursuit. It came almost instantly and everyone heard it. The faster they moved, the faster their pursuer moved, but as they grunted from painful cramps, their breath became ragged. They noticed no similar sounds of exertion were coming from behind them, only the steady stride gaining inch by inch. That's when the other three realized what Pete had noticed before. Whoever, or whatever, was chasing them didn't even have a flashlight. Then, the whistling began, similar to a higher yet slower rendition of London Bridge. None of those boys were in excellent shape, but Michael was a heavy-set asthmatic. The shock caused him to gasp in surprise, triggering a full-blown attack. Pete's voice shook as he described what it was like to drag his friend along with those heavy footsteps gaining close enough to smell rotting meat. It was at the last second when the would-be assailant descended on them, that it vanished. They were at a complete loss to explain what happened, and I certainly didn't have any suggestions. It's hard to excuse yourself after a story like that, but I had to keep making the rounds. I went by once more before the end of my shift and they were packing. One of the tents had four long claw marks over the entrance, but they wouldn't stop to discuss what happened. After a rushed apology, they were gone. I wasn't far behind them, but I was in time to see that their van sped away. Had I caught them in the parking lot outside of the scary forest, they might have shared what happened. But I'm just glad they got out safely. If only I could do the same. It's fine and dandy to scream at the movie characters to run for it, but in real life, 
people need money. Most of us don't have the luxury of quitting our jobs on a whim. I'm looking for new work, but I'm stuck here until I find it. That's why I said, yes sir boss, when Rick asked if I would come back for more. In the warm light of day, I felt like the world's biggest chump. I was ashamed of myself, of me, a grown man turning yellow as chicken piss over walking over some park trails in the dark. Everything made so much more sense in the daytime. I let first day jitters get under my skin and got all worked up over some paranoid hillbillies and drunk college kids. There was nothing else to it. Anyone can go out into the woods and whistle while they terrorize innocent people. That's right. I was responsible for those two lodging areas. We aren't allowed to bother guests in their cabins, but only to show our presence by patrolling the blessedly lit sidewalks. All of my earlier righteous anger powered me through the night's first dark path, but I found myself stalling before the second. The next trail sent a shiver racing down my spine. The temperature felt several degrees colder. I walked lap after lap around the lodges hoping someone would call for assistance or provide a reason for further delay, but none came. There's no way to explain what it was like to make myself enter that trail. It felt like waves of pure evil were wafting off the breeze, but I couldn't very well hop on the radio and request an escort either. Teeth gritted, I concentrated on how ridiculous I would later feel, and that helped a lot. The air was a little lighter and my heart was trying to crawl out from my clenched ass cheeks when I heard it. Footsteps matching my stride, following me from somewhere to the left. My immediate reaction was to speed up, but then I thought of those college kids and how the footsteps vanished before they were able to face them. Stopping went against every instinct, but I forced myself to stand still. The whistler also came to a halt. It was still a half mile to the lake lodges, too far to run. After an internal pep talk, I turned and marched back the other way. Fantasies of catching a crazed homeless person filled my mind, and I focused the flashlight on where it sounded like the bastard stopped. I'd gotten myself so worked up, my only fear was that I might do something terrible to the guy, making me look foolish. When a stick snapped right near the light's beam, I crawled into the brush, swatting aside thorny vines and a bramble as I searched. Finally, the light caught movement ahead, and I peel back one last branch before screaming my throat raw. The area beyond was covered in blood, and only visible part of my stalker was one horrible glowing red eye lost in a clump of pitch black fur. The rest of it remained hidden, and my legs carried me away without conscious instruction. There were no sounds of pursuit as I ran back to the first lodge area and waited for reinforcements under a street lamp. Thankfully, none of the blood was human but there wasn't so much as a bone shard left of the animal. Who knows how many that thing has killed? None of the local predators are known of that level of brutality. Not even cats play with their food to such an extent. After describing the creature, my boss has claimed it was a bear. I'm far from an expert, but on my son's life, that wasn't the eye of a regular animal. Can't get it out of my mind. Every night I see it in my sleep, it's like a brand in my soul. Maybe this is karma. My wife loves the ghost and demon shows, but I had something smart to say for every overused line in the script. The retorts for, it still haunts my dreams, were particularly snappy. Yet here I am, lucky to sleep for four hours at a night. The next morning, 
they installed trail cams and had a full surveillance system scheduled for the following week. It sounded great for investigative purposes, but they were little comfort to those of us in the war zone. The next few shifts were gloriously peaceful, but disaster was waiting around the corner. I suspect many details were omitted in the official version, but on my night off, one of the other attendants was killed. They say he died a hero, but Tyler was 21 years old. He wasn't trying to be anyone's hero. A couple reported their son missing only a half an hour into his shift, and he radioed for help. While waiting for backup, he and the parents searched for the boy just off trail. The dad found a toy in the brush about 15 yards away and tried to run in that direction. Worried the man would also become lost, Tyler had him wait with his wife and took it upon himself to chase after the kid. He was only 10 to 15 minutes ahead of the others when they finally arrived and began the official search. For 40 minutes, they called for the missing boy and Tyler before encountering a wall of fog. It was solid white beneath their flashlights except for a small shadow figure walking towards them. I can only imagine how terrifying that sight must have appeared. When the child emerged, he was alone and unresponsive to questions. Two attendants escorted him back to the trail while the rest remained to search for Tyler. By then, the actual search and rescue had arrived and taken control. Apparently, it was too dangerous to enter the fog. Instead, a perimeter was set and guarded until it was clear enough to be able to proceed. It was the first time I had heard of search and rescue carrying weapons or guarding anything, but nothing surprises me anymore. The weather did not clear until dawn, and by then, the only thing left of Tyler was DNA. If the lost kid ever provided information, no one deemed it necessary to tell me. I'm not sure he and Tyler even crossed paths that night. Until then, I never told my wife exactly how dangerous the job could be, but hiding the death of a co-worker proved too challenging. I hate that she thinks I'm living out some sort of Stephen King story about Killer Mist, but it's preferable to a whistling monster that might attack me anywhere at any time, right? The next night, we started working in Paris. I was partnered with Amy. She's in her 30s with a wife and two kids. We instantly clicked, but I would prefer a teammate with less to lose, or an asshole. That probably sounds horrible, but now it's not only my life at risk, it's someone I care about. My stress limit was already maxed out. I'm grateful to not be alone anymore, but there's always a little awkwardness when you're plunged in potentially life-threatening situations with a stranger. Of course, our initial responses were to finally discuss insane things we'd experienced on our patrols. But can you imagine what that was like? Picture yourself walking down a dark, dense trail with only a flashlight and a person you met a few hours ago. The mood is already tense, yet now you begin to relive horrifying memories. Can you see where I'm going with this? I shared what happened with the red eye and she shared her own moment of terror. But that was all for a while. In truth, I expected Amy's story to fall short of my own in terms of sheer fright, but it was quite the opposite. She was patrolling the route I had first, but it didn't turn bad for her until after midnight. She had already spoken to campers, and the only report logged was a complaint of someone whistling on the trail we nicknamed Crow's Foot. It was actually her third lap when she heard screaming at Site B. She radioed the office while running and emerged from the trail's end less than 60 seconds later, in time to see the back of something massive, furry and black, hulking over a small shape on the ground. The moment her light came near the creature, it vanished. 
she described it as someone donning an invisibility cloak, which is apparently a Harry Potter thing, but self-explanatory nonetheless. When the light fell to the motionless form left behind, Amy saw it was a child and ran to it instinctively, as I'm sure any parent would. It was a young girl, curled into a fetal position. Her eyes were squeezed shut. Nearby, her parents were calling. Amy drew a deep breath to answer, but something suddenly yanked her off the feet. She tried to scream, but a wet, hairy hand covered her mouth. In her gasping attempts to receive oxygen, the smell and taste of spoiled meat assaulted her senses. Just as she thought she would lose consciousness, the parents appeared, the monster disappeared as it had before, and Amy fell to the ground hard. A warped version of Ring Around the Rosie was the only tune whistled to the Myers family, but Amy didn't hear it. Needless to say, those kinds of stories weren't being shared with us lowly attendants. It scared me to think what others might have experienced. I thought about Tyler a lot that night, too. Three days later, the fancy surveillance system was finally installed and they asked us to watch for any trail cams that may be overlooked. We thought it was weird. First, wouldn't you want as many eyes as possible out there? Then, we realized that they didn't like the fact that just anybody could walk up and pop out the SD card. It would be a nightmare if the wrong person saw something unnatural. We were assigned to the last cluster of campsites, the area farthest from the base. If any were forgotten, it was definitely one of those. We checked every spot along our route and found one of the very last at a campsite. The camera was in a tree, and with a little teamwork we got it down with no problem. As I turned back to the trail, Amy cut me off. She was digging in her bag and wore a devilish grin that made my stomach flutter with anxiety. She pulled out one of those little Chromebooks. I knew we were in trouble. Are you sure you want to see what's on there? I asked, knowing full well I didn't. I am, was her only answer at first, and I held my tongue. She was fully focused on her task. Of the numerous pictures taken, the last three were the only ones of real interest. The first showed an image of a creature from behind. It walked on two legs and was carrying a deer carcass over its shoulder. The biggest buck I have ever seen. The second was nothing but forest, so we assumed the monster moved on. When Amy scrolled to the third, she dropped the computer and we both screamed. It was that damn eye again, looking directly into the camera lens like it was doing a retinal scan. I closed the screen as I picked up the laptop, but the images were still clear in my mind, seared. Amy apologized meekly as she accepted the laptop and removed the SD card. She's been having the same nightmare since her encounter with the creature. Every night she returns to the moment she saw it standing over the little girl and forgets it's only a dream. This time, when the light falls on the hulking monster, it doesn't vanish. It turns to face her with its piercing red eyes glaring through knots of black matted fur. It has less hair around its lips and chin. The mouth is easier to describe as a quarter-sized hole, and it expands and contracts in order to eat and whistle. The first time she dreamed it, that was where it ended, but it goes a little farther each night. After Amy has time to comprehend its horrific features, it begins walking towards her. She wants to run, but her legs won't move. That morning, she woke when the creature was only three feet away. She had hoped to see something different in real life, but I knew that eye had been enough to confirm her worst fear. I wish there was something I could do to help, but I've never felt so worthless in all of my life. We were nervous 
You could say we were nervous wrecks for many days, and especially the remainder of the shift, but we had a pretty slow night. Luckily, we were able to leave the camera on Rick's empty desk. Had he been there, he would have known we looked the moment he saw our faces. That brings us to what happened last night. The reason I finally decided to sit down and write this. We were working the lake lodges again, and it started as another slow shift. But at 1.15, our radios cackled to life. A 13-year-old girl went missing from campsite D, and all employees were ordered to join the search. I'm sure we weren't the only team thinking of Tyler. It was impossible not to, especially if you knew what was out there. Even so, it's still a missing child. We hurried off in that direction, but we were far away. It was doubtful we would arrive in time to do much of anything. Because of our significant distance, we were extremely confused as to how thick this mist seemed to be forming around us. It started low, crawling across the ground and spread faster than a fog machine. We ran both ways, but within minutes our trail ends were completely blocked by solid white walls of fog. Venturing off trail was not an option. Amy and I felt certain that that's what it wanted us to do. Instead, we held hands and tried to distract ourselves with mundane conversation as a haunting rendition of Ring Around the Rosie filled our ears. It wasn't coming from any one direction, but from everywhere. There were no forest sounds left, no birds or insects, just whistling. Soon, we felt the ground shake with the creature's heavy steps. We would die if we didn't move, but we equally were certain of our doom if we tried to walk the trail. I froze under the pressure, and Amy pulled me into the bushes. Thanks to her, I'm alive to write this now. The creature didn't appear from the direction its steps indicated, but the one in which I wanted to flee. It passed by us without a glance, probably focused on the young girl thrown over its shoulder, and Amy lunged forward as if to intervene. It took all of my strength to hold her back. The kid was already dead. The way her head hung against the creature's back was wrong. There was no reason for us to die with her. It only walked a few yards further before leaving the trail and setting down to eat. The sounds we heard over the following half hour will play in my head for as long as I live. Bones were snapped, organs were squished, and the monster made a horrible slurping sound when it drank from her blood. When it was finally over, we heard it walk deeper into the forest and the fog began to dissipate. We crawled from our bushes, tears streaming down our faces. We were filthy but alive. Every second spent inside that fog felt like hours. We ran into search and rescue a few minutes later and explained what had happened. They could not say any of it to the young girl's parents and ultimately chose to let them think we were still looking. It makes me sick to think of them sitting by the phone, praying it rings but dreading it at the same time. They deserve closure. They need to grieve. This one has me really upset. Those poor parents will end up moving here just to keep searching and it will be all for nothing. I'm also worried about Amber. Thinking about how far her next dream might go is terrifying. Surely, it can't actually kill her. It's not like a Freddy Krueger possessed Bigfoot, right? I'm going to call her before tonight's shift, just to check in. After what we went through yesterday, I, I don't know how I'll force myself to go back tonight. I've never been this frightened in my entire life. Well, Mr. Swamp Dweller, that catches you up where I am now. But if anything new happens, I'll be sure to send an update. 
thanks again for letting me get this off my chest. You take care. We're always rooting for you.